Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the northern lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. Radio Free Palmer org is our live streaming site, and you can find all of our episodes over on firstpaw.media. Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. And today I am joined by a musher calling in from Wisconsin. Her name is Jamie Perry. Jamie, how's it going today? It's going really well today. Well, thank you very much for being on. Will you do us a favor and just quickly tell us who you are and what you're all about, please? Um, yeah, I am, I have been running dogs for about 27 years. I work here in Wisconsin as a, uh, dairy specialist. So I focus on helping dairy farmers to feed their cattle the best that they can. And that supports my hobby. And, um, I live on a little farm with my daughter, Riley and my boyfriend, Joe. And you and I met, I guess, a few years ago at one of the ISDRA conferences. And for folks that may not know, that's more geared towards the sprint mushing side of uh, of dog sledding. Is that what you're most interested in? I know you're heavily involved in the dryland portion there in the upper Midwest. Yep. Um, so we uh, we, as a family, primarily focus on limited class sprint racing. We put out um, four and six dog teams of Eurohounds and then an eight dog team of Eurohounds and an eight dog team of Siberian Huskies. Um, and occasionally if we have extras and we just put them all together into one team. I so like, yeah, our focus is sprint racing. I like that. I like the two different uh, breeds and we're going to jump into that in just a second for sure. So Jamie, when you sent over yeah. your bio, you said that you found out about mushing like a lot of us did in the Iditarod program, if you will, in school where you follow the mushers along during Iditarod. And of course, a lot of us followed that same thing and got hooked. And before long, here we are talking on a podcast about mushing. So tell us a little bit about that, those very early days of your introduction to dog sledding. Um, well, it was before we had uh, such great access to social media. So um, I fell in love with, I guess, the romantic side of it all. I had great entertainment following the race, just thought it was just fabulous, and I'm an extreme animal lover. So I talked my mom into letting me have a Siberian Husky because I thought that's what I needed to be a, a musher was a Siberian Husky. I never told her when I 
we went to pick up the first one that there were actually two. And then I did what a lot of new people do is I just kept collecting them. Um, and it was a lot, um, a lot of hard work, a lot of mistakes. Um, and I just didn't really know what I was doing. So these days, part of my focus outside of racing is to mentor people in the sport so that they don't make the same bad decisions that I did and overwhelm themselves and end up not continuing along. And that is a great take-home message. And I want to jump into that in a little while, too, because I think more than anything, people need to hear that from from mushers is don't fall into the potato chip syndrome, as so many of us do. So with that uh, first purchase of dogs, if you will, what year was that, Jamie? Oh, let's see. It would be 1990s. Seven, maybe. Okay. Ninety-six. So yeah, quite a yeah. quite a while ago. I started in ninety-four, so uh, got started mm-hmm. around the same time. So with that, that was sort of the heyday of the early days of Iditarod. There was a huge amount of uh, publicity, big time sponsors back then. You know, it was a different race altogether. When you fell in love, if you will, with mushing and following Iditarod. Did you have those Iditarod dreams like a lot of us did, or was that just sort of like going to the moon? I did have those dreams. Um, it seems like we all do. Um, and those dreams didn't disappear for a while, but I went away to college and ended up selling most of my kennel. I had 21 dogs when I graduated from high school. So I sold most of my kennel and went to college so I could get a degree. And then I started paying attention a little bit more to the other side of looking at doing that race and um, the financial commitment and the the time commitment and kennel size and realizing that as an actual responsible adult, I could not do it um, as a young adult coming out of college. So I just said, resigned, resigned myself to, uh, recreational running which I had been doing all along until I moved to Wisconsin um because I as much as I'd seen other types of racing it just hadn't soaked in as the love of my life and I could do this forever type of thing at that point so yep I did I did want to do it I realized I was not going to earn enough money and have enough time um to do it and I'm still not sure I would now Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure a lot of us hold on to those elusive dreams, and that's what keeps a lot of us going uh, in whatever walk of life, whether it's Iditarod or horse racing or whatever that we're involved in. I think that we have to sort of hold those dreams close for sure. So, Jamie, you said that even as a kid, you were drawn to the Siberian Husky, and of course, that is the prototypical look of a sled dog, if you will, uh, considering, well, now you, you have the Eurohounds, which are the ultra competitive sled dogs. And, and I'm anxious to hear about that. So why did you stick with the Siberian for so long? You said it went all the way through high school and of course into college. And here you are now still racing, uh, yeah. the, the fluffy dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if I'm a fool or what, but, um, I, when I moved to Wisconsin, I joined the Wisconsin Trailblazers and one of the couples that mentored me into getting into sprint racing was uh, Beth and Paul Wagner and they were racing Siberian Huskies and their Siberians were nothing like mine and mine were all backyard bred rescue type dogs, pet quality. Um, and they just had these phenomenal dogs and I, I really just loved them. 
their demeanor was very different. Their, um, they were actually structurally correct compared to mine and they just were just amazing dogs. And through those first few years of racing, the opportunity came to acquire dogs from their lines. And they helped mentor me along with um, Jeff and Jen Spiegel, who also run Siberian Huskies, uh, mentored me into being able to breed what I have. And I'm very particular about the demeanor. So most people meet my Siberians and they are not what you expect for the breed. They're, they're cool. They're calm. They have really wonderful off switches. Um, they're insane in harness. They like to go, but they're not what the general public would think of for Siberian. Um, and as much as I love the Eurohounds, I actually kind of put them on the same plane in terms of demeanor and personality. I, I think it's why it's easy for me to like both breeds is because I seem to prefer that personality type in the dogs and I've bred it into my Siberians. Well, let's talk about that for just a second. I remember getting pretty much laughed out of an obedience ring back in the day with my Siberians because they did not look like the prototypical quote unquote show dog Siberian, you know, the, the fluffy dog with the, with, you know, with the short stocky, all of that. And I'm sure a lot of people know exactly what I'm talking about, but very few people know what a Siberian sled dog should look like. And can you tell us a little bit about that? What makes the big difference? If you could compare and contrast of what the Siberian that you may see on a TV commercial is compared to what a racing Siberian is, can you, can you, Tell us a little bit about that, at least in audio form, since we don't have a visual. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to get into the show versus working line thing because I think it's an overrated argument within our breed. But um, for me, my dogs still fit within the AKC standard um, for a Siberian Husky. So, um, and for people that don't know, the AKC standards are for all the breeds, what they should be height-wise, weight-wise, fur you know, um, structure, eye set, ear set, tail, how they carry their tail type of thing. There's, there's a long list of the Siberians. Um, so my dogs all fit within that, but they are in comparison to a lot of the show dogs we see, they proportionally would look leggier. They're longer bodied. Um, they're not fluffed out. And sometimes I think we forget that show dogs are bathed and groomed before they enter the ring. So on a day-to-day basis, they may not look quite as fluffy. Um, and they're just, um, we, we call it racy looking. They just are longer bodied, longer legged, sometimes a little bit more angular in their front shoulder and their, and how they carry their rear end. That would be, those would be the big differences for me, but they're not tremendously bigger. They're not small. They fit, like I said, within the standard, all of my boys are under 60 pounds or 55 to 58 pounds. My females range from 38 to 46 pounds. So they're very moderate size. They have the ability to go fast. I think people forget that at one point in time, uh, the AKC standard said that these were dogs that were capable of traveling 20 miles an hour over an extended distance. And we tend to trot the pretty show dogs and we forget that these dogs can go fast. And so um, that's something that people don't realize is you can get some speed out of them. There are some very competitive Siberian Husky teams out in the sprint circuit. And they're just as capable as most of the Alaskans at at carrying um, some good speed. I think it would be a pretty good rule of thumb, Jamie, to just narrow it down to one word. I think that a sled dog Siberian is just a little bit scrappier looking than the show dog or pet dog Siberian. I'm sure you would agree with that. Yep. They're just not 
prim and proper compared <laughs> very, to the show dog. Very good, very good. So let's jump into talking a little bit about sprint mushing. You talked about earlier in the show that you guys run both Siberians and Eurohounds. And for longtime fans of the show, if you remember our uh, dog driver series with my buddy KP, we talked a lot about the Eurohounds. And of course, a lot of those guys got their start in mushing by owning a Siberian. That seems to be where a lot of folks get their start is that Siberian track, if you will. So you have both yeah. breeds, Jamie. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Are, are they all together? Do they run together in teams on training? Kind of give us a synopsis if you, if you can. Yeah. So they are all kenneled together for the most part. Um, we in our system, we have about 40 dogs in our yard. So we have the opportunity to have chain link kennel runs and tethers. We just kind of house the dogs how they prefer. Um, in the kennel runs, they have, uh, most of them have roommates, so two dogs per run. And we don't separate them that way. If, if they're a good match, doesn't matter what breed they are. As long as they get along well and, and have fun together, then they can be roommates. Um, we do... I will admit this. We have five dogs in the house. They are all Eurohounds. Not that I don't love my Siberians in the house, but there's a tiny bit less hair with just the Eurohounds inside. Um, but the Huskies do get to do their turns in as well. So training-wise, we usually start the fall season, everybody together. We kind of pick and choose who's going to complement each other um, and train young dogs. And so if we have a good, solid Siberian Husky leader that is a good teacher. We will put a young Eurohound with that dog so that they learn good skills, um, good manners. And then we kind of adjust as speed goes up in those teams. Um, I'm the, I'm the Siberian driver. So at some point around dryland racing time, we do start separating the, the teams out for each driver. And so the sides will get separated out and I usually train them in a string of 10 to 12 and um but i do if i have issues i have no problem throwing a eurohound on the front of my team because i have had some leader issues the last few years i currently have um a, a eurohound who is my main leader she's been training all of my young dogs so that they learn their commands and a little bit of drive because um, we do utilize the eurohounds drive for speed to encourage the huskies to tap into their drive for speed um, so we do, we do a lot of it. I, in racing, if I, I'm the one that gets the leftovers. So if we have a, a hound that didn't make another team, but still needs to get out and race and wants to go, it'll end up running with the Siberians or we'll put together a team that may be mostly Siberians to, um, to get those dogs out racing. So do so you, we do, tend you to, do you still enter into some of the, um, purebred classes or no? I have not entered many of those in the last two to three years. I um, I run the eight dog class. There isn't a lot of entry into the registered breed for that. Um, and I just, I enjoy the, um, the drivers in the all breeder pro class. Um, it's just like a really cool supportive thing for me. Nobody cares what I drive. I just show up and I run a big team just like everybody else. So I do not generally enter registered breed. Um, if I do, it tends to be in dry land and, um, that's more along the lines of to help add some ISDRA drivers for some of my fellow Siberian drivers who are trying to earn medals and things like that. But generally not so much anymore. Do I run registered breed? 
So, Jamie, you talked about uh, the the Siberian of yesterday. And, of course, a lot of people know at least some of the history from way back in the 20s and 30s with Balto and Togo and Sepala and all that, sort of the foundation of the Siberian. And when they entered the American Kennel Club, I guess that was right around the same time in the early 30s, and they came out with that... Um, that uh, that structure, that confirmation, that 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 whole process of what a dog should be bred to do, and for the most part, the sled dogs of the Siberian world have stayed to that. But now you have a dog bred very specifically in terms of the Eurohound, very specifically for dog mushing. Uh, you know that where they've combined mm-hmm. a couple of breeds together to to make this super dog, if you will. And since you see both sides of the coin, the Siberian and the Eurohound, what are the big differences that you see today in in the two breeds? So structurally, I think a good dog is a good dog. We want to see some of the same things across the board in terms of ratios in length and height and angles of front ends and, and back ends and things like that, um, whether they're short-backed or not. Those things are all the same across the breed. The the one thing that is really cool to me, as having both of them, is the Eurohounds just have more drive to just go. My, my Siberians want to go, but if they tire you're going to see it faster than you would with a Eurohound. They seem to find a second wind quite frequently when we're training on our longer runs. All of a sudden, I can, I can stick with them for a while with a Siberian team. And all of a sudden it's just like, they look back at me and go, well, that was fun. See you later. And they just find another gear and they're gone. Um, that's something that my dogs can't always do. Um, and then conditioning wise for our kennel, it is far easier to condition the Eurohounds and maintain their physical conditioning than it is for the Siberians. Um, if we drop back a day in training um, continuously for a week, so if we go from four days of training to three days of training, within two to three weeks, I will see a loss of performance in the Siberian Huskies, whereas the Eurohounds probably won't show much of any difference. Um, so it's it's that's the big things to me. But um, that's so mentally, we use the Eurohounds to encourage the Siberians. Um, to kind of, they have that drive. They're they're very focused, very driven dogs, but sometimes they uh, are a little bit more stubborn and willful. And so we use the Eurohounds to be like, hey, you know what? Going fast and forward is fun, even when you're a little bit tired. And they'll uh, they'll pick you back up that way. And I know from my Alaskan friends up here, they will say right off the bat that the the Eurohound dogs are a little bit harder to keep in terms of weather and conditions outside and keeping them warm and, and all that. Do you, do you run into that where you're at as well? Yep. Um, we have chosen um, dogs from lines that are a little bit hardier than some of the other ones. Um, so we've got a little focus on a tad bit more coat in the hounds that we keep. But yes, we will box them when it gets cold much earlier than I would normally consider boxing the Siberians. We have to up their food intake. Um, and it's so it takes a little bit more maintenance in in the cold weather to handle them. We carry jackets, things that I didn't used to do for the Siberians. Um, but it is kind of cool at the same time, though, because if I'm going to box 28 of our 40 dogs, I might as well box the rest of the Siberians, the 12 of them. So everybody gets boxed up for the winter on the really cold days, even when the sides probably most people wouldn't do that with them because they think they've got a good coat. They should be fine. But it saves us so much in 
calories. We don't have to feed the dog so much if we box them more often. And um, in the feeding, we can kind of adapt that even with the Siberians. So by kind of taking the extra requirements of the Eurohound and applying them to the other dog, we actually end up doing uh, a better service to all of the dogs in the kennel that way. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about where you live and race. You're sort of in a hotbed of mushing there in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan area with a very robust sled dog club. And I say that because many clubs today are not nearly as active as they were 15 or 20 years ago. But the Trailblazers seems to be, uh, pun intended, trailblazing the uh, the sled dog world with with all of their activities and stuff. Tell us a little bit about where you race, about the club, about your your circuit, if you will, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, I joined the Trailblazers Club in 2006. I went to my first meeting and met some of the members, and they were very welcoming and encouraging, and they conned me into doing all this racing stuff. But um, it's just been a really good core group of people. Everybody's focused on having fun. Um, the community within our, our club and our, our region is very focused on having fun, supporting one another and taking care of each other. So that's, I think part of the reason why the club continues to go and do as well as it, as it does is because the focus is on each other and building that community. Um, racing wise, you know, it ebbs and flows just like a lot of other activities in the, in the world. Um, if money's tight, you know, you're going to see some things change. Races have gone away or come back but um there's been a lot of support long-term support of the races here in wisconsin by the club even when some of those races have gone independent the club members still very actively support that that event and keep it going um it's it it has its issues with trying to find volunteers we all we always struggle to do that but we seem to pull it together um and do between fundraising and putting on events um like this weekend, we're going to be, we'll have a, a booth at the Willow Springs Garden here near us. Um, they host two of our races. So in the middle of the summer, we'll take dogs up and we'll we'll go to their their 4th of July event and talk about dog sledding and share our dogs and encourage people to check out the races later in the year. So that's a big thing with the club. Circuit-wise, for us, we do try and hit all of the races here in Wisconsin and most of the ones we can get to in Michigan um regularly and then we will travel to ontario we've gone to manitoba and hopefully this year we're looking to go out east to either pennsylvania or new hampshire as well so how many do you typically run in a year on a and of course like you said it could change year to year with snow conditions and all that but including dry land that i'm sure starts in september october how many races are you typically running yeah we will typically do let me think here one two three Three to four dry land races, and then our goal is usually four to five sled races. Sometimes we can get in six or seven, depending on snow conditions. But it's not unusual for us to do between eight and ten events racing races a year. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I think Alaskan clubs should really take heed to that because we're lucky to get in just a couple of three races just because of our geography and all that. But they, I tell them all the time, I'm part of the Chugiak Club, and I tell them all the time, we need to really pay attention to what these guys are doing down south, in particular the Trailblazers, because you guys just put on so many events for sure. So let's switch gears again. I always ask my guests the same questions, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I sent over 
the questions to Jamie earlier when we first connected about being on this show. So hopefully I'm not putting her on the spot. Are you ready, Jamie? Sure. All right. So the first question is, you've been involved with this sport for quite a while now, and I'm always interested to hear what mushers have to say with this one. But where do you see the the sport, whether it be sprint mushing or dry land or Iditarod or Quest or anything, where do you see the sport in five to ten years? I'm going to go on the optimistic side of life. And I think while we've had some decreases in participation in both uh, racers and sponsors and things like that, I think um, we're back on the climb. Um, At least here in our limited class stuff and our dry land, we've gotten a lot of new people in the last three to four years who have come in and started with one to two dogs and they're doing dry land racing. We're, We're running two dog sled uh, races in our limited class stuff. And it's kind of cool to see that those people now three, four years later are showing up to race with two dogs, three dogs, four dogs. So I don't know that we're going to get back to, you know, kennels the size of what we have, but I think that we're going to continue to see some growth in the, uh, four and six dog sled classes and the, some of the rig scooter and bike classes for dry land. Um, I can't really, I, I don't know what to say about the, the long distance excuse me, long distance or mid distance. I just don't have enough knowledge of where that's going, but I see a lot of excitement and uh, newcomers. So that to me is a positive thing. I like it. Okay. So the next question is, is there one book, blog, podcast, whichever that you're following that you would like to tell people about? Oh boy. I really rattled my brain (laughs) brain about this one. (laughs) Um, I try to keep a, this is not even going to be dog relating, dog related, uh, something that I follow closely because my world revolves around uh, um, markets and things like that. So if you're ever curious about what's going on in the world, and this is just like, again, not dog related at all. I do follow a podcast called Cognitive Dissidents, and it's really cool geopolitical market things, what's going on in the world and how it's affecting everything local to us. So it's weird. It's not doggy related, but at the end of the day, it affects my paycheck. And if I don't have enough money, I don't have enough dog. So I like it. And we'll share that over on the show notes page. So the next one is, is there one person in your circle, your network, that's up to some pretty cool things? Who is it? And if it's dog related, maybe we can have them on the podcast. Um. You know, I, I really enjoy quite a few people in my circle, and my circle is just very dog-related. Um, I am having a great kick out of working with some up-and-coming racers. Uh, a good friend of mine, Cynthia Hull, she's in Arizona. She's looking to, to get into things a little bit more. She's done some dry land work, and she's building a team to, to become a four-dog sled team. Um, so she's someone that I just really get a kick out of working with and getting to know. Um, we recently did a breeding with Mandy Collins. She runs uh, driven North washing. I think a lot of people would know what that is with, uh, some clothing and designs that she does. All right. We'll, we'll definitely, um, we'll definitely share those two there. If you could pass Uh, Mandy has been on the show a couple of times when we did the dog driver. So interested to hear possibly from your other friend, if you can share a link. Okay. Next question. Two more here. Uh, the next question yep. is, what are you thankful for today? Oh, 
I am thankful for the opportunities that I have. Um, it seems like I've worked really hard to get where I'm at, but, um, I wouldn't be where I am actually. So it's not just the opportunities, it's the people. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without the people who support me, um, within the sport. I've had incredible mentorship with, from, uh, Beth and Ken Casaldi, um, Beth and Paul Wagner. And then within my job, I've had just some phenomenal coworkers who've encouraged me. And then my daughter and Joe have just been amazing to keep me going. Very good. All right. So last question, then I want to talk a little bit about an event you're helping out with. Where are you most active yeah. on social? Is it Facebook? Is it Twitter? Is it somewhere else? I am mostly on Facebook and then I play with TikTok. But on Facebook, we uh, I have my personal page. We have a kennel page and then we have a farm page. And so I like to keep things updated and share stuff there. All right. And we'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. So, Jamie, uh, you and I connected uh, most recently about an event you're doing uh, in uh, a month or so towards the end of the summer as we head into the mushing season. It is a sled dog expo. And I'm anxious to come up and talk to folks about uh, podcasting and storytelling and all of that. And uh, I know that you're one of the organizers. Tell us a little bit about the event. Yes. So this is called the Midwest Sled Dog Educational Expo and Trade Fair. Um, we are hosting um, the second round of this event. Uh, two years ago, the Great Lakes Sled Dog Association started it, and it was held in, in conjunction with an ISDR convention over in Michigan. And it was such a hit that it was asked that we, it was, it was suggested that it be done again. And this is hosted by another one of our sled dog clubs here in Wisconsin called the Langley County Sled Dog Club. Um, it's more of a training and educational group. So most of us race, but we also, our focus is going to schools and talking to people and mentorship and things like that, and then training together. So as an educationally based group, we decided to tackle this and put it on again. Um, we make, we're making it a biannual event so that um, we're not overlapping too many things. Our goal is to encourage everyone involved in dog powered sports from beginners and recreational up to um, professional racers. So we are putting together uh, speakers and presentations that focus on anything you could possibly think of from foot care equipment maintenance and care, introductions to different types of dryland equipment, ski drawing. Um, our two biggest speakers, one is going to be Heather Hearn. She's coming to talk to us about canine genetics and share some of her updated, um, recently re released research. So uh, hopefully we get to talk about cool things like what they found with Balto's DNA and things like that. Um, but then I am putting together, my exciting thing is a panel and we have several speakers all the way from one of our local gentlemen who does a lot of recreational and rehabbing of dogs through dog powered sports and encourages people to work their dogs recreationally. Um, limited class sprint racing with Mike Marsh. We've got Jake Robinson, Ryan Bieber, um, Lisa Weaver. Robert's going to join us to talk about expedition stuff. And we are going to have, one of two I did or odd racers as well on our panel. So anybody who's thinking about anything involved in dog powered sports should be able to ask the questions of people that are, are doing it so that they can kind of gauge where they want to go and who they can talk to. Um, and then as a trade fair, we're going to have equipment suppliers. We've got like Wolf Track scooters, Risden rigs, um, Arctic Star rigs, 
um, our Xtar sleds and several of our other equipment suppliers coming on board as well. So it's going to be a, a big event. We're looking forward to it. We are hosting it where we host the Red Paw Dirty Dog Dryland Derby in Pearson, Wisconsin. So a lot of people that are from the Midwest know where that is. And it's kind of cool to be able to see that trail or see that facility um, without a dog sled race going on. And when is it? It is September 15th through the 17th. So we'll start Friday afternoon and we will finish up by noon on Sunday. All right. And we will definitely put a link to that. I'm sure a lot of our uh, Midwest musher friends will will be interested into that. And uh, hopefully we can uh, get some more people up there to... Uh, to attend and find out what it's all about for sure. Well, Jamie, that's all I have. Did we miss anything? Is there anything else you want to mention before we go? No, I think we got it. All right. Very good. So on behalf of my guest today, this is Robert for Mushing Radio. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.